This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do send me your comments, your questions to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionpodcast.org. When I was a boy, my mother made me take piano lessons. She herself was an excellent pianist. She hoped her kids would become good pianists too. None of us did, of course. Not for lack of trying. She made us all take piano lessons. And when I say all, I mean not just me, but my eight brothers and sisters as well. Everybody had to take piano. I had to take piano. I didn't practice a lot. Again, not unusual. I practiced very little. My lessons were torturous because I hadn't practiced. I never learned to read music very well. After a few years of this, I put up a big enough stink about it that my mother effectively threw up her arms and gave up. Stop making me take lessons. So by the time I was in sixth grade, my music career was over. That chapter of my life was done. There was no more potential I would never be a concert pianist. I would never play in a band. I'd never be a musician. Well, I started to think about this as I turned 13, 14. And then when I was 15, I began to have regrets. I thought, you know, the guys who can play piano or guitar, sing a little song, you know, they get the chicks. And I had quit. Oh, man, I had a chance to become kind of good. I was starting to feel wistful full of regret that I'd let an opportunity slip by. And so I told my mother, to her surprise, when I was 15 years old, I'd like to take piano lessons again. She about fell over, but after collecting herself, she said, okay. And she found a good teacher in town, a tough teacher, a different teacher than I had when I was a smaller boy learning piano. And I took piano throughout high school, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, and I got better, learned to play some tunes. My hands got stronger. My forearms, get, you know, when you play piano a lot, your forearms get stronger. My forearms got stronger. I never was able to read music. That never came naturally to me. But I could memorize long pieces. And as I played certain genres, I get better at those genres than others that I didn't play so much. I was never able to play hymns very well because I just... Couldn't read the music very well. The bass lines were confusing. You think, you know, hymns seemed like they'd be easy, but for me, they weren't. But by the time I got to the end of my junior year in high school, beginning of my senior year, I started to realize, as I had when I was in sixth and seventh grade, that I was not going to be a concert pianist. I was not going to play in a band. Except this time, I had no regrets about it. I didn't look backwards and say, oh, I would have, could have, should have. Oh, because I had tried really hard during high school to get better at piano. I practiced. I tried to learn to read. I took on challenging pieces. And I had gotten about as good as I was going to get. And so I didn't mind that there was a ceiling on my musical upside. I didn't feel regret that there was a limit, an end to it. I'd done all I could, gotten about as good as I was going to get. 
Now you could argue, maybe I could have got a little better, or maybe I could have, you know, but, but really I had tested my limits. I learned who I was as a musician, and I realized how much talent I had and how much I didn't have. I sort of learned what I was musically. My teacher during my high school years pushed me. She was a disciplinarian. She was a perfectionist, a technician. She did not tolerate coming to our lessons without a good solid week of practice behind me. She was tough. She helped me get the most out of my abilities, the most that there was to be gotten out of them. Because, you know, with music, talent matters. Like they say, you got to have a little chocolate to make chocolate souffle. Well, music's that way. Still, I became the best that I could be, and I was satisfied. We need experiences like this one in life. Not just with music, but with most things. Academic pursuits, artistic pursuits, athletics. In our ethical, moral, and religious life, we need things like this. We need people who are going to push us, test us. We need to see how far we can go, how much we can learn. Because let's face it, when we're born, when we're young, when we're growing up, we don't know what we are. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're capable of. And it's nice during that period of life to have people around who expect a lot out of you, who teach you principles, who teach you the basics, maybe who are too tough on you even, because it gives you something to push against or to aim for or to try to become. And in the process... You learn what you are and what you aren't. And most importantly, you learn how to learn. You discover how to discover, which is more important than anything you learn or discover during that time of life. Richard Rohr, Franciscan monk, calls this period of life the first half of life. And he says it's important from his observations to do the first half of life well. To strive, to test, to push against, to conform, to become, to learn. These are all the things that go on during the first half of life. And if you have good parents and good teachers and good church people, good coaches who expect things from you, Whether you meet their expectations or not, the process of trying, of learning, forces you to recognize things about yourself, forces you to realize things about yourself, forces you to become what you can become, and when you fail, paradoxically relieves you of the fantasy of becoming something you're not. We should all be grateful for those people in our lives who help facilitate this first half of life learning and growing and discovery. A lot of people, however, are not grateful about their first half of life experience. Common complaints are that our teachers, leaders, coaches, they were all too rigid or they were all too stupid or or they were too simplistic or they, you know. But this type of attitude belies an understanding of the first half of life. During the first half of life, there is no other way but to be simplistic. 
formulaic, even bossy, because during the first half of life, what we all need is for someone to sit us down and say, do it this way. This is how you do it. Don't get confused with all, just sit, just do it this way. And of course, some of us fail when we're told how to do things, and some people grasp the way faster than others. But the facts are, it's all just introductory. It's all the basics, the fundamentals. And so, of course, people are going to be too rigid, too bossy, too doctrinaire, too formulaic as they try to help people along this first half of life period. In fact, you almost have to be doctrinaire, formulaic, bossy to be helpful to someone when they're in the first half of life, when they're starting to learn things. I don't mean you got to be mean or rude or, or you can't do it with kindness, but you got to kind of say, look, this is how you do it. Do it this way. A, steps A, B, C, D, you know, whether you're learning a skill, math, music, a sport, you got to sort of say, here's how you kick the ball. Here's how you do the math problem. Here's how you read the, but this is, this is the way it's done. Do it this way. You need someone to tell you that. And if people won't step up and tell you that, they're doing you a disservice if you're in the first half of life. This is what Richard Rohr says anyways in his excellent book, Falling Upwards. But then something happens to everyone. Near the end of the first half of life, all the things, the methods, the ways, the formulas, the tricks, all those things start to ring a little hollow. Known truths get repetitive or suddenly aren't as applicable or seem short-sighted, or poorly thought out, or simplistic. or And we start to realize that there might be better ways of doing things. Better ways to think about things, better ways to practice things, be it a skill, be it your religion, be it your musical instrument. This is, of course, the beginning of the second half of life. And it's not like there's a line drawn in the sand or a day on the calendar that marks the transition from the first half of life to the second half of life. And frankly, this doesn't happen all at once for anybody because in some areas of your life, you can transition to the second half of life pretty early in life. And in other areas, you transition to the second half of life way, way later in life. And so depending on the area of your life, the particular skill, the particular aspect of life you may be in some areas of your life in the first half but in other areas in the second half it gets you know it's i don't want to get too fixated on any particular line but there's a point regardless of the subject regardless of the topic or the skill where you transition from the learner to the master to the second half of life person and sometimes during this transitional people period, people start to gripe and complain and to point fingers and talk about how terrible all the leaders, instructors, coaches, teachers, whoever it may be, how terrible that group of people were to them during the first half of their life. There's this period in between the two stages where sometimes people can get very angry because they realize how limited, simplistic, formulaic, milk toasty shallow everything was that they had been taught during their first half of life. Again, this applies to every aspect of life. Music, skills, relationships, religion, morals. 
But there's this period of anger where you sort of wake up, you really understand it, and you say, why did they teach me to do things this way? Or what was, you know, Mr. Jones thinking, teaching me about that? He never mentioned any of this. There's this period of kind of, hey, nobody really told me how things really were. This period of anger. And this anger can last for a long time until one of two things happens. One, you just grow out of it. You grow up, you mature. Or two, you have someone who's in the first half of life that comes to you and wants you to explain to them how to do something. And you have to, for the first time in your life, take your fire hose of knowledge, gushing out of your fire hose-like brain, and crank it way back so that the first half of life learner doesn't get their face ripped off by the pressure. And the facts are that even if you're doing a better job than the people who taught you, the facts are that you have to restrict how much you're going to give the learner, the first half of life person. You have to limit You have to circumscribe. You have to simplify, become formulaic. You have to figure out a way to simplify something so that the person who knows nothing can at least begin to explore his or her own ability. And frankly, there's nothing that will make you appreciate the people who taught you more than trying to teach others than trying to do a better job than your leaders and teachers did when they were teaching you. It is a beautiful part of life to go through that and to see others go through that because then you can see people really come to terms with their past and the people who played prominent roles in it. And the great ironic or paradoxical or unexpected part of it is deciding what of all your great knowledge, wisdom, experience, expertise, deciding what's the most important thing to pass on as a seed to those new entrants into life, those in the first half of life, determining what they should get, what They need to learn first, second, third. What the order should be, that is brutally difficult. First-time parents know what I'm talking about. Primary teachers know what I'm talking about. Elementary school teachers know what I'm talking about. Piano teachers, coaches, physics teachers, people setting up a production line, people trying to organize newly hired employees, priests, Bishops, Relief Society presidents, they all know what I'm talking about. This group of people, these second half of life veterans, tend to be more patient, more compassionate, more understanding, willing to give other people more of a break because of this experience, because of this experience of trying to break things down, simplify, this experience of trying to Rain back the gushing fire hose down to a little trickle so that the first half of life people can begin to drink. That group of people is a little more charitable towards other second half of life instructors, be it people who were their own instructors when they were first half of life people or their colleagues. They recognize it's difficult 
And it's difficult because the second half of life is so different from the first half. During the second half of life, you know from your own experience what works. You know from your own experience which rules should be broken when and when those same rules should apply. You know the special cases. You know how things work and when things fail. But you also know when you're teaching the basics, when you're teaching foundational principles, it's hard to lay out all the special cases ahead of time. It's hard to tell people that whatever rules you're going to give them, oh, they can break depending on the context and whether there's just... It's hard to talk about those sort of things and it's much easier to just simplify. And so that's what you do because... First half of life, people have no judgment, have no wisdom, have no experience. First half of life, people need black and white. And second half of life is defined by gray. First half of life, people need rules and order and insiders and outsiders. And second half of life, people see things as one great big interrelated organic thing. And so it's hard to be a second half of life person and it's hard to teach a first half of life person when you're a second half of life person. There's nothing easy about it. Each Sunday at my ward, I teach a bunch of first half of life people. And when I first started doing that, I wanted to be the cool guy teacher, Mr. Lovable, everybody's buddy, And I've learned the best way to teach these first half of life people is to be very clear about the limits and the boundaries because they need lines. They need rules. They need order. They don't understand the deeper concepts that we discuss here at Mormon Awakenings. They can't chew the meat. They can't drink from the fire hose. They just can't. And we all understand this because we, we second half of life people, use terms like age appropriate or expressions like walk before you can run or milk before meat. I'm not trying to denigrate anyone in the first half of life. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm just saying we start where we start. We need to learn what we need to learn when we need to learn it. But eventually we stop being first half of life people. We stop being the person who merely plays the scales on the piano, who merely goes to the range to hit golf balls, who merely sits at the kitchen table learning their times tables. And we become musicians, athletes, engineers, designers. And we realize that things are flowing through us And that we're using skills, but we're making something bigger, beyond, better than the skills. We realize, too, that we're doing something, but we're not really doing it alone. We're part of something bigger. And this marks a transition to the second half of life. So one of the ways you can tell if you're in the second half of life is if you are in the flow, doing complex things without thinking about it anymore. Second half of life people also think they know relatively little. 
which is paradoxical because they know so much more than first half of life people who seem to know everything. But second half of life people realize at some point that compared to all that there is to know, they know almost nothing. Whereas first half of life people, at the peak of their first half of life delusion, feel they know everything there is to know. All of this, of course, is the process of becoming an experienced person. It's the process of changing from someone who relies on beliefs, guidance, rules, rubrics, to someone who just knows. And life is way more interesting at that stage. Now, a lot of people complain. They say our institutions don't help us in the second half of life. There's, oh, our institutions are restraining us. They're holding us back. There's no one out there to tell me or to coach me or to help me during the second half of life. And, of course, on one level, that's true. Our churches, our schools, our clubs, our corporations, they're primarily first-half-of-life institutions. The church, for example, is a first-half-of-life institution. People gripe about that. They'd like some more nuance. But, of course, there's a reason there's no good functioning second-half-of-life church. Because that's not the way the second-half-of-life works. In the second half of life, you're the church. You're the artist. You're the musician. You're the historian. You're the mathematician, the designer, the engineer, whatever it is, the parent. And the universe starts to work through you. And the most that you can do is appreciate on an individual basis the second half of life productions, contributions, works of others. You cannot institutionalize it, make it systematic, because everyone in the second half of life is unique, different, expressing their individual essence. This is what most of our stories try to teach us, at a deeper level anyways. The Odyssey is such a story. Odysseus leaves home fights battles, and then goes on this long journey back home. And when he returns, he's a different person. Recognized by his dog Argos, yet a completely matured and fully baked individual. In the process, he wrote his own script, walked his own path, played by his own playbook. All things which were possible only because he had a good first half of life foundation to build upon. Because a good first half of life gives us things by which to measure our lives. Gives us an understanding of how to use tools. Gives us many points of comparisons by which we can start to make sense on our own of everything that happens afterwards. The life of Jesus is basically the study of an excellent second half of life. During the first half of his life, he was trained in the basics of Jewish life. Hebrew scripture, the law, the basics, the fundamentals, learned a skill, a trade by which he could make a living. And then armed with these tools, with these fundamentals, he became Jesus, renegade, teacher, innovator, iconoclast, destroyer of old ways, martyr, ultimately resurrected into a completely new divine being. An incomparable being. The stories of Joseph of Egypt, of Moses, 
of Job, which we've talked about in this podcast, of Jonah, which we've talked about in this podcast, of Esther, which we've talked about, of Ruth, of Adam and Eve, are similar type of stories. Stories of people who blossom from the first half of life, from the state of being a novice, into a full-blown, unique, individual work of beauty. Now, I've just spent a long, long time talking about first half of life, comparing it to second half of life, going on some harangues. Sorry about that. But it's because I want to make one further observation. In our culture, in the LDS Church, we are obsessed with becoming perfect. Someday I'll be able to keep the commandments perfectly. I'll be able to do everything right. I'll stop making mistakes. Every T will be crossed, every I dotted. There'll be no blemishes on my garments. They'll all be washed clean. In my view, this is a first half of life tactic used to impress upon the young, fertile minds of people in the first half of life that they ought to take their training seriously. That they ought to accept the rules, the lines, the boundaries on faith and do it to the best of their ability. But obsession with perfection becomes a stumbling block as one transitions out of the first half of life. Obsession with perfection must be sacrificed on the altar of maturity, growth, fulfillment. The second half of life is about doing what you do and being what you are. Expressing the reasons that you were created. It's no longer about doing things right. It's about doing you. And of course, by definition, there can be no institution, no group, no playbook to tell you exactly how to do that. The way Mozart was Mozart, Beethoven was Beethoven, Jesus was Jesus. You just have to be you. And compared to some of the things that you were taught during the first half of your life, you may be surprised at how unconventional you are, yet at the same time, how firmly you are built upon the foundations that you were given during the first half of life. So own you, own your decisions, own your conduct, own your path. Stop blaming the institution, your parents, your teachers, other people for things that they taught to you, which were undoubtedly inaccurate simplifications, formulaic. They were just doing their best and no one's perfect. Instead, own you. Stop worrying about doing everything right and start doing the right things. Stop acting like you know everything. And start allowing the powers that lie beyond you, yet are part of you, to work through you. Well, that's kind of weird. That seems like that has no lines, no boundaries, no end. One eternal round, in a way. But that, of course, is second half of life. And none of it makes sense to any of us until we do the first half of life well. So don't be in a rush. Because it's all going to work out and it's all going to make sense in the end. Well, I've gone on way too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.